Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Claire McKeever Burgett, and I serve as the Associate Director of the Academy for Spiritual Formation, an international ministry of the Upper Room. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. Today, we're joined by Dan Wolpert, who is Academy faculty, Upper Room Books author, Upper Room e-learning facilitator and teacher, executive director and co-founder of MICA, the Minnesota Institute for Contemplation and Healing, spouse, partner, ally, activist, dad. Dan has been a student of the spiritual life since age 21 and has taught in the fields of psychology and spiritual formation in numerous settings. In addition to his retreat and teaching work, Dan provides counseling and spiritual direction services at MICA. He is also the author of Leading a Life with God, The Practice of Spiritual Leadership, Creating a Life with God, The Call of Ancient Prayer Practices, co-author of Meeting God in Virtual Reality, and most recently, The Collapse of the Three-Story Universe, Christianity in the Age of Science. Dan lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota, just two blocks from where George Floyd was killed. Our conversation is an important one, especially for white people. Dan helps illumine the spiritual life as the life, encompassing all things from justice to activism to prayer to healthcare to work. Everything is connected, says Dan. In many ways, they are the same issue. Listen on, beloveds. Listen well. Listen deep. Listen wide. Well, Dan, welcome to the Academy podcast, and I'm so glad to see you today through Zoom and hear your voice and get to share your wisdom with our listeners. And so as we get started, something that I always love to ask our guests is about the spiritual geography, the spiritual landscape of your life. And that's how I like us to kind of start to get to know you. So tell us more about where you come from, uh, the land from which you were born. Okay. Great. Well, thanks, Claire. It's, it's great to be with you and to be doing this. And hello uh, out there to everybody in virtual reality and academy world. Uh, I had to cancel a, a five-day academy as part of the quarantine, so I'm definitely uh, missed out on my uh, academy hit, and uh, it's nice to be able to share with folks uh, through this medium. Yeah. yeah, I can talk very specifically about uh, the spiritual geography and landscape because for years I, I struggled with uh, that great American question, uh, what do you do? Right? Mm -hmm. So people always, you know, when you meet somebody, you say, well, what do you do? <laughs> and, uh, and for years and years, I just did not have an answer that I liked. Uh, I would tell people what my job was, or I don't know, I had to kind of fumble around with it. And, and it honestly took me about 20 years to come up with an answer that I liked. I, I'm a little slow, I guess, in that regard. <laughs> Uh, but what I finally came to is that my primary vocation is as a student of the spiritual life. So when mm -hmm. people ask me, what do I do? Uh, that's what I do. And so over the years, I've had to have a lot of different jobs to uh, pay for my contemplative addiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, But really, from a very, very young age, I began to have a lot of really interesting experiences that I suppose in some ways I would now call mystical experiences. And of course, at the time, I, I really didn't know what that, what they were, uh, what that was. Uh, I was raised in a pretty secular uh, household. We uh, come from a Jewish heritage, but uh, my parents were not religious at all. And so I, I just didn't have any kind of frame of reference for any of this. And it wasn't until, uh, it wasn't until I graduated from college 
uh, which was at a quite young age. I um, have uh, talent for academic work and uh, was sort of way ahead of my uh, time uh, in terms of that. But uh, I hitchhiked to Alaska and I happened to bring along a, a book on Buddhism and I'm not even sure why I did that. I can't remember what was the, the impulse to do that. But so I, I'm out in this incredibly beautiful wilderness, which I had always been very drawn to. And I'm reading this book on contemplation, and it really came to me, this is it. This is my vocation. Hmm. And so that sent me on uh, what is now a pretty long uh, odyssey and journey uh, through a variety of contemplative communities, a couple of different uh, religious backgrounds, denominational backgrounds. Uh, and as I said, I've, I've then had a lot of different jobs, but really the, the underlying thread is as a student of the spiritual life, uh, which is what I, I continue to be. Yeah. And of course, we're going to talk more about where you currently reside, which is Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, mm -hmm. here in a few minutes. But I'm curious what led you there. Right. So I grew up in a small town out west. Uh, you may have heard of it, Los Angeles. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, then migrated to Northern California. Uh, my wife is from New York. We actually met in San Francisco, uh, spent some time living in uh, both New England and Colorado, really had no Midwestern connections at all or sense of that. But uh, this is where we ended up after I graduated from seminary in 2000. And we started out in the far northwest corner of the state. And people would ask me why I was there. And I would say, God is the only logical explanation uh, because there really is no other reason that we would have ended up there. And, uh, and then almost seven years ago, uh, we ended up uh, moving down to Minneapolis. And that largely was a result of uh, Deborah's uh, job change. We, we still run a retreat center in Northwest Minnesota so I'm up there quite frequently, but uh, our mailing address is, is now down here, right in the city. Okay. So I've shared some about you in the introduction and of course, Academy folk who've experienced your presence and teaching know some about you, but I'm wondering we might not see on a website or read on a page that you would share with us about you, about who you are, um, let's see. Uh, well, uh, we might read somewhere that I have uh, two adult sons uh, who have two wonderful partners, and uh, they're, they're great. Uh, they're, one just turned 30, uh, which must mean that I'm old, uh, and the other one is uh, 27. Uh, one's, uh, the younger one's a professional musician, and the older one uh, does computer game design. Uh, so they're great, and they're a uh, big part of our lives, and uh, that's, that's been a real privilege to uh, be with them uh, for all these years. Mm. Uh, the other thing, uh, and I, I've actually been thinking a little bit about this, because I know we're going to talk some about uh, the current events of, of yeah. the day and of uh, issues of race and racism being a white person. But uh, one, of the, uh, one of the great loves of my life, which I, I can't really do anymore, again, because I'm old, uh, or can't do it to the degree that I would like to do it, uh, is that I'm a, a lifelong basketball player. Oh. And uh, that, I love basketball, and that's, uh, that's always been a big part of my life uh, since I was very, very young. Again, I grew up in West Los Angeles. Uh, for those of you who know anything about basketball out there, uh, UCLA basketball used to be pretty good. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I uh, spent uh, many, many hours uh, up on campus uh, playing in open gym settings. And uh, that, that was really great. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. So. Are they still your team? 
Uh, yeah, sort of. I, I mean, they they have not been good for years and years and years. But, yeah. You know, it was. Uh, I, I, I'm not. I'm not much of a you know particular team fan as as I've gotten older, but. Uh, but yeah, certainly from a nostalgic point of view, yeah. they're great. Yeah, I grew up basketball as well, and was a pretty decent. Uh, had a have a pretty decent shot, and still, my four and a half year old son is always like, "Ooh, mommy can," because we have a basketball goal out mm-hmm. here and and play, and you know, I've kind of shown him some of that. But I never had the height that. Right. Or the speed <laughs> that was that was required for for, for me to uh, to fully excel at that, and so. But I do love it, and I love watching mm-hmm. it, and uh, so that's that's fun to hear. Yeah. Well, yeah, you you kind of in your opening uh, description of your kind of spiritual geography, and kind of went right there to the question of vocation. Mm-hmm. and the I am a student of the spiritual life. And I wonder if you might just expand a little bit on that. Like, how do you understand the spiritual life? Mm-hmm. And uh, what does that look like in the day-to-day for you? Right. So the spiritual life uh, really is an orientation to life. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're all living lives, and we have to kind of decide how we're going to live them. Uh, or if we don't decide how we're going to live them, then basically our our society, our tribe decides for us how we're going to live them. Uh, but the the spiritual life basically says that uh, that human beings uh, that there's a problem, right? Human beings have a problem, and depending on your religious tradition, that's talked about in different ways. Uh, but, you know, if we look around at human society and we look around at how humans treat each other, it really is not very hard uh, to come to the conclusion that there's a problem, right? And, uh, and so the spiritual life seeks to find a solution to that problem. And again, in uh, Christianity, uh, we, we talk about overcoming sin. Uh, that's largely... Uh, how, how Judaism talks about it, although there's a slightly different understanding of what that's all about. Um, uh, Islam has, has the uh, understanding of renunciation, uh, and Buddhism uh, talks a lot about uh, enlightenment and overcoming suffering and confusion, uh, which is also the primary orientation uh, in Hinduism as well. Uh, so, so the spiritual life then is a set of teachings and practices, uh, habits and practices that uh, attempt to get at uh, how is it that we live a life where we are, uh, again, solving this basic challenge that people have. And it really is very much focused on, on our lives, on the here and now, right? So it's it's not really about uh, what happens to you after you die. I mean, that may be part of the religious system that the particular set of teachings comes out of, but uh, the spiritual life really is about how we live our lives. And so uh, it's, it's about trying to uh, bring greater healing. Uh, it's about trying to uh, enact uh, justice in society. It's about... Uh, trying to uh, engage and live uh, from a place of wisdom. Uh, so these are these are some of the things that that one is trying to do as as you live your life, and uh, and it really does encompass uh, every aspect of your life, right? So it's not just about going to church on Sunday. Uh, it really is about what is going on every day. What is going on? Uh, when you're in relationship, what is going on, uh, how you're spending your time, your energy, your effort, your money, uh, what is important to you, uh, what are the choices that you're making. Uh, so, and again, all of the habits and practices and all of the teachings uh, help us to become aware of and to pay attention to these things. Yeah. 
So speaking of that, you do live, I think, what, two blocks from where George Floyd was killed. Yes, yes, and two blocks from... Yeah, tell us uh, what that's like, um, what it's like mm -hmm. in Minneapolis, what it's like for you personally as a person of faith, as a person uh, very much interested in the whole of the spiritual life. Mm -hmm. uh, what are you observing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, so this has been an incredibly intense week. Uh, as you said, we live two blocks away from where he was killed uh, on a corner that we go up to all the time. Uh, you know, we go by Lemons at the store uh, where he was at and uh, half and half when we run out of it. Uh, my favorite barbecue place is two doors down. Uh, it's the bus stop where we get on the bus to go downtown or my wife gets on the bus to go to work. Uh, so, you know, this is our, our home, our neighborhood. And uh, what has gone on here the past week has, has really been incredible. Uh, the, the uprising uh, has been incredibly intense, powerful, uh, very dramatic, a uh, lot going on. Uh, and if people are, are interested in more of that, uh, I maintain a pretty robust Facebook presence, and I've actually been biking around town uh, all to all the major sites and uh, doing these little live video feeds. I've been doing a lot of writing, and that started last Wednesday, I believe, and, and they're all public, so you don't have to be a friend of mine on Facebook, and you can just mm -hmm. go uh, check those out and watch me ride through the smoke and fires and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, one of the things that, uh, for me, contemplation and action, uh, so social justice and enlightenment and wisdom go hand in hand. And I've been involved in movement work my entire life, uh, literally since I was very, very young. Uh, so for me, this, uh, this is very familiar. Uh, I've been involved with... Uh, working with uh, police um, abuse for decades. Mm. This is uh, incredibly tragic, incredibly painful, uh, and also, sadly, in America, incredibly normal. And so, uh, in many ways, this has been another, just another in a long, long line of police uh, abuse and death. Uh, what has been very significant about this particular time around, though, is that the intensity of this uprising uh, has demanded attention, mm -hmm. and that's been fantastic. And in a very short period of time, we have forced the government to do things that they have never been willing to do in terms of holding police accountable, in terms of holding the police department accountable. Uh, and that has been very inspiring. Uh, and honestly, every movement that I've been a part of that has had this level of success uh, has required a tremendous degree of intensity. So, uh, so for those who, who kind of think that, you know, these sorts of protests don't work, um, they actually do work. And it's sad that they have to be this intense. It's very sad, you know. And, and that's very much connected to the spiritual life. You know, this is one of the things about spiritual teachings, right? And we see this over and over again in the Bible. You know, God basically says, look, um, you know, live by my laws and everything will go okay. And then people turn around and they're like, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and right. then, and then God is like, well, then things are not going to go well. Right. And yeah. cities get burned down and people get uh, hurt and sent into exile and all kinds of crazy stuff happens. Uh, and then we reset and God says, live by my laws and things are going to go. Okay. And usually people say, no, <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, this is, you know, the book, over of, and over uh, the and book of Kings is sort of a comedy routine, right? The list of kings that, that don't follow God's rules and they get smushed and, you know, and then it, it resets. And, you know, the spiritual life says, look, we can either voluntarily engage in activity that is going to lead to justice and peace, or we can experience the opposite of those things. And we just, we just as people, tend to be kind of dense, right? And, uh, you know, in addiction work, they talk about you have to hit bottom before you finally maybe get it. Uh, but that's really true in everything with human beings. Um, yeah. You know, everything that has happened in the last week is, is perfectly preventable. There, there is... There is nothing that could not have been prevented here uh, had the state responded uh, in, in a way of justice uh, from the very beginning. Right. Uh, but the state doesn't tend to do that. And so this is what has happened. And, you know, now the elected officials have kind of gotten it, <laughs> at least temporarily. We'll see. But yeah. Um, and, you know, and so, as I said, I mean, we have gotten things that we've been asking for for years and have been completely stonewalled. And these things have happened in the course of a week, which is yeah. really remarkable. And what's happening in Minneapolis right now is sort of, in many ways, a micro of the macro issues, right, of mm -hmm. white supremacy and so much of the fact that, I mean, we live on stolen land and I mean, it goes back to the inception right. of our, of our country. And so, so much of what the, what I've been reading in the past years, of course, points me to white supremacy is a white people's problem. It's yes. our problem. And so it's <laughs> <laughs> like, it's our work to dismantle. And I'm aware how big that can feel for people who are sitting in their homes, their church pew, they're kind of going, okay, where do I even begin? Mm -hmm. So as someone who has been doing this work for so long, um, where do we begin? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the things I guess I would like to say about that is that that notion that this is so big that I, I don't know what to do and I can't begin mm -hmm. is, is part of the denial to even begin. Uh, because the truth of the matter is that it, it's actually easy to begin. You know, th this is something I think we need to get over, this idea that yeah. this is yeah. like impossible to begin or it's too big. Uh, you know, I'm a big uh, Wizard of Oz fan. I don't know if you are. You will be as your kids get older, maybe. Right. Uh, you know, and, and when Dorothy gets the instructions to, to go to Oz and to go to the Emerald City, you know, she asks Glinda, she says, well, how, where do I start? And Glinda's the good witch. And, and Glinda says, well, it's always best to start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the teaching of the spiritual life. And then that's also the teaching uh, about this issue. We have to start at the beginning and the beginning is me. Right? Mm -hmm. I am the beginning of, of anything that I do uh, because I'm the only person that I have any uh, control over, any authority over, any ability to engage really <laughs> in any substantial way. Yeah. And so, uh, so as a white person, we have to begin with ourselves and really uh, beginning to understand who we are as a white person in America and to uh, really take uh, very seriously that exploration. Um, and, you know, what I see all the time is, uh, and there's a whole now uh, set of information about this. This has become kind of a whole field called white fragility. Uh, there's this thing. Uh, so one of the obstacles to uh, any kind of deeper transformation, right, is uh, defensiveness. 
And it's a defensiveness that arises uh, out of the ego's need to maintain itself. Mm. Right? And so, you know, again, the spiritual life says this is about radical transformation of who we are. And we say, well, I kind of like who I am. Like, I don't, I don't want to be radically transformed. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so we have to begin with that, with that deep desire uh, for change. You know, what, one of my uh, favorite gospel stories uh, is the story of uh, the, the man at the pool in Bethesda. And so he's this cripple and he's been sitting by this pool and, you know, you're, you're supposed to get in the pool when it fizzes up to, uh, uh, you know, to get healed. And the guy says to Jesus, you know, man, I've been sitting here for 30 years and every time the pool gets stirred up, you know, there's nobody there to help me. Somebody else cuts in line. I can't get in, you know, will you help me? And, you know, you know that that guy is not being honest. And there's absolutely no way that in 30 years sitting by the pool, he could not have gotten in there. Yeah. And so Jesus asks what I think is one of the, you know, there are a few super powerful questions in the Bible. And, and I think this is one of them. Uh, Jesus asks the man, he looks at him and he says, do you want to be well? Because what he realizes, right, is that this person, and again, this cripple sitting by the pool is, is all of us. Uh, our, we are stuck in our habitual patterns. We're stuck in our uh, lives of our ego self, of the things that we know, of the world that we know, of the things that we're comfortable with and used to, which even includes bad things, right? We, we, you know, habits that we don't like, but they're still our habits. And so we're stuck with them. And the real starting point, again, this, you know, where do I begin? Jesus looks at this guy and knows that he has not really addressed this fundamental question of, do you want to be well? Yeah. Do you want to be different? So, you know, if you're a white person in America, you have to ask yourself, do I want to be well? Do I want to be free of this toxicity that I am a part of, uh, that, that I benefit from, uh, that, uh, I have been trained in, do I want to be well? Am I really interested in the just society? Because and, until we answer that question, and again, this, this is true about every issue and problem that we may have. Right. <laughs> I, I talk with people about this all the time and things totally unrelated to, to whiteness. We, we can have to continue to return to that because without that basic motivation, without that really deep desire of, yes, I want to be well, it's very, very hard to move on. And it's very easy, again, for the defensiveness, for the habits, for all of that to be layered uh, on top. And uh, one of my other really favorite little spiritual life phrases uh, is that uh, revulsion is the foot of meditation. Well. And what that, that's essentially saying the same thing, right? That until I am revolted with myself and my life, <laughs> until I am really sick of the way things are, it's very hard for me to engage the spiritual path because the, the force of my ego is really powerful. Right? It's a tremendous okay. habit, uh, as we know now, from neuroscience, it's literally kind of baked into our nervous system. Uh, so, so if we uh, encounter that desire, and if we recognize that we want to be well, you see, then that immediately releases all kinds of energy and all kinds of open space and all kinds of possibility to start exploring and learning about what this whole thing is. Right. And uh, to to understand where it came from, to understand uh, how we as white people benefit, to understand how we have been taught 
uh, that people of color and black people are not even human to begin to uh, recognize and evaluate our internal states, uh, to recognize our privilege, to begin to think about how we're willing to give that up, uh, to really uh, start to uh, give space in our lives and in our worlds to people of color, uh, to begin to hear them, uh, to allow ourselves to be different so that we can be safe uh, for people of color. Uh, you know, one of the things that white people, especially nice white people, don't think about is that we are really dangerous. Yeah. Like in whiteness, we are dangerous, right? So you as a white woman, me as a white man, we are very dangerous people. Um, you know, as a white woman, all you would need to do is start crying and say that a black man hurt you and you suddenly become a lethal weapon. That's right. Uh, as a white man, all I need to do is uh, say that I'm scared of a black man and I, I'm allowed to kill him. Um, so even just understanding these basic things that, that we have to uh, that we have to make ourselves different as people so that we can create that safe space so that people can begin to trust us who are not white. Uh, and that, so again, all of that is only possible if we engage that deep desire. And how do we hang out with the reality of uh, sort of revulsion without shame? Um, well, so first of all, uh, there's, uh, there's really kind of two kinds of shame. Mm -hmm. uh, we, don't, we don't get very nuanced about shame. And of course, shame is really in right now. So everybody's talking about it and, uh, and mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of the hot topic, um, which is always a problem when something's really in and is a hot topic. Right, as if, yeah, people haven't been doing yeah. that work for years. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's, there's a kind of shame that is this really toxic shame of, uh, you know, there is something fundamentally bad about me. And actually, you know, the church has been really good at that kind of shame. <laughs> um, right. And that sort of shame yeah. uh, is pretty much always very unhelpful. Uh, but there's another kind of shame that arises as we are aware of systems and activities and behaviors and structures that we are a part of that are not good and healthy. And, you know, that kind of shame is not so bad, right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you know, confession and repentance uh, often arises out of being ashamed of uh, what we have been up to. Now, now, again, we don't want to allow that shame to drift into a guilt that paralyzes us. Right? And people talk about this. Again, you know, well, you, right. just, you just want all white people to feel guilty and da, da, da. No, that's actually not what it's about at all. Uh, it's not what it's about at all. It's simply about we need to recognize uh, what is real, and we're doing this out of love, right? That's the other part. So, uh, you know, one of the great phrases in the, in the spiritual direction world and the spiritual practice world, right, is that it is about taking this long, loving look at the real. Yeah. And so, you know, the real is really what's going on, right? And, and a lot of, uh, you know, one of the phrases in a lot of movement spaces is, is being able to have real talk, right? Talk about what's right. real. Mm -hmm. um, and so we want to take a long look at that, which may involve some of that shame and some of that revulsion. Uh, but we also want to take a loving look, at that, right? So we want to understand that the end goal is love and compassion, yeah. right? So, so we're not looking at this to, you know, beat ourselves up, to dump on ourselves, to repeatedly say how horrible we are. That's not why we're doing this, right? We're doing this to move uh, to a space of love and peace and justice. 
right? And, uh, you know, and when we engage in a lot of spiritual practice, uh, we encounter a great deal of intensity that, uh, that we have to work through, right? Things that we've experienced, things that, you know, we've done that we don't like, things that we've done uh, to others, things that others have done to us. Uh, again, often the spiritual life gets turned into this nice little lovey-dovey, airy-fairy, oh, everything's going to be, you know, unicorns and rainbows when we sit down to engage the spiritual life. That's not true at all. Uh, there's a great deal of intensity uh, that comes up because, again, you know, what is real is that the, the world has a lot of problems, a lot of issues, and we are part of that. Um, yeah. But we continue to return to this understanding that the, the purpose, the basic thrust of this uh, is uh, for love and care. Yeah. Of course, George Floyd and all of these, uh, his death and then all of these protests and riots that are now, I saw a map today in every state Mm -hmm. There is some kind of protest uh, in our country across, across the board. Um, it's happening in the time of COVID, <laughs> in the time of a, a right? I mean, a global pandemic. I thought the pandemic was over. Right. <laughs> is that still Exactly. <laughs> it is, apparently. Um, and so, exactly. And so, and of course, we know that... Uh, Persons of color, indigenous people, black people are being disproportionately affected by the virus. Mm -hmm. and, of and of course, we're still, I mean, all, there's multiple reasons for that um, that are also connected, right? Housing, access to healthcare, food, all of it. And so let's talk a little bit here about how that lands and. Um, when you say, right, start small, um, begin with ourselves, um, I can just imagine so much of us are sitting here going, that's kind of terrifying, <laughs> right? <laughs> In some ways. Um, and, and so how are we as, as faith leaders, as spiritual people, people who are kind of standing face to face with the terrifying mm -hmm. in multiple ways. Um, how do we do that together in a time where it's kind of hard to be together? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, we, first of all, we have to do it together, right? I mean, uh, and spiritual life and practice is all about community and it's all about being together and, you know, one of the really fascinating things to me about this week is that there have been thousands, I mean, there have probably been 100,000 people in my neighborhood this week. Wow. Right? In, a, in a neighborhood that on a good day, we've got like 10 people <laughs> walking around. <laughs> right. Uh, and, you know, this is why I joke about, well, the pandemic's over, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you, you know, a week ago, we were trying to socially isolate, trying to cower in our homes. Uh, and now I've been out on the street with 100,000 people day and night uh, yeah. you know, for a week. And, uh, and, you know, this has been very much addressed, actually, at a lot of these rallies and a lot of these, uh, uh, a lot of the speakers. Now, people are not dumb about this. Uh, they understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the message has been, look, if I have to trade being safe from COVID uh, for having to cower in my house because I feel like I'm going to be killed by the cops when I go outside, uh, I'm going to go outside to protest not being killed by the cops. Like, I, you know, uh, yeah. yeah, that's a bad trade, but, uh, but that's what I'm going to do. So... Um, it, you know, it's, we're in a really difficult time. I mean, we're in a really difficult time and there's no question that one of the things that the spiritual life talks about is that everything is connected. Yeah. Everything is connected. And so there's no question that the issues of climate change, the issues of income inequality, uh, the issues of, 
the pandemic, the issues of systemic structural racism, of empire, uh, all of these things are not only interconnected, but in some ways they're the same issue. Right? They're right. the same issue. They, they are this issue of the human being uh, fundamentally uh, not wanting to give up oneself, uh, not wanting to engage uh, with others, not wanting to empower those who are oppressed, uh, not wanting to live in a just society. You know, and so, uh, so yeah, I mean, we, uh, we are in this difficult time. And again, each person, you know, and this is the other thing about this is that, and that's why, you know, the starting with yourself is so important. You know, people will see something like this and, and they'll see the, the actions in the streets and especially, you know, the academy or the, the mainline church crowd. And they'll say, look, I'm an 80 year old person. I'm sitting at home. You know, my knees are bad. <laughs> COVID's going to yeah. kill me quicker than somebody else. I can't go out in the street in March. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, right. You don't have to go out in the street in March. Uh, and there are a number of really wonderful uh, lists that are going around right now. Uh, I shared one with my prayer class. I know Parker Palmer has one. Black Lives Matter have, have posted a number of them. There are a list of like 20 things. Like what, what can you do if you want to help develop an anti-racist just society? You know, and look, this is nothing new. I mean, Paul talks about this in the Bible, right? The body of Christ, there are all these different parts of the body, you know, and the right. foot is just as important as the head. And again, you know, we don't believe that, right? We, we're like, oh, that's cute. It's in the Bible. But no, the head's more important. <laughs> and, and that's what we say about this. Oh, marching in the street is more important. Well, not really, right? I mean, if you can give money to a bail fund, yeah. Uh, that money is really, really important for those people that get arrested, right? Um, if you can send food to a food shelf, uh, that is really, really important to people who are without food. Um, so there, there are many, many ways that we can engage. And, and again, the teachings of the spiritual life uh, help us to begin to listen deeply for how are we called to be in the world uh, in times that are calmer and also in times that are more intense, right? And, you know, and this has always been the tr true in spiritual community. You know, you've got the monk who's the cook. You've got the monk who's the doctor. You've got the monk who does the garden, you, you know. Um, we, know, we know this about society. Everybody's important. I mean, that's one of the things that supposedly we've learned during this pandemic, right? That grocery store workers are really important and essential. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so as we go deeply into ourselves and we do that in this uh, open and compassionate way, uh, we just begin to say, okay, well, what am I really called to do? And what feels really life-giving for me. And again, especially because we have the internet and we have, you know, mobile depo remote deposits and we have mm -hmm. uh, websites and uh, we can give money and we can do different stuff and we can send stuff places. Um, you know, there are a million ways to plug in. Yeah. Uh, just, just last night here in Nashville, uh, our Metro uh, Nashville Council met about the budget and of course there's super increased funding for police. And I tell you what, we Nashvilleans showed up and that meeting lasted um, until almost 5.30 this morning. So almost wow. 11 hours because of how many people showed up and how many people were calling in. Wow. And jo awesome. Johnny, yeah, Johnny, uh, my colleague, of course, um, he tried calling until I think close to 10 o'clock and couldn't get through. Right. And I had said, you know, I'm going to email these people, you know, and so that that's what I did. Cause Lord knows I don't stay up well, <laughs> well past nine, but, um, but then reading about that, it, 
Whew, that gave me uh, some some oxygen and yeah. some and some hope this morning. Yeah, and then you know, and the other thing about the whiteness deal, right, is mm-hmm. that white people have a lot of power in our okay. society, and so you know, and I have been calling on my rich white friends constantly this week. I'm like, I want you to put on your nicest clothes. And I want you to come down and stand in front of the police precinct because you know what? If there was a thousand of you standing there, there wouldn't be tear gas and rubber bullets. Right, <laughs> right. Right. And so, again, in your community, if you are a prominent white person, um, you know, you, you maybe even have the mayor's phone number. You maybe know the mayor. Maybe the mayor's your cousin. <laughs> you know? uh, we That's have right. access to power. And so we can really begin to use that uh, for good, right? right? I mean, there, again, there are a lot of different ways to work the system. Right. And, and certainly uh, when a bunch of wealthy white people make phone calls, uh, those phone calls are weighted very differently than when a bunch of poor black folks make phone calls. Right. Now, that's terrible, and that's unjust. However, that is reality. And so if that's reality, we need to use that. You know, And this gets into the whole thing of strategy and tactics, right, which is a big part of movement work. Right. We need to use that. You know, yeah. and, uh, and I've been telling people, I've been telling all my white friends all week, you know, call the attorney general and get him to charge these cops. And I've had person after person after person saying, yep, I'm calling, I'm calling, all my friends are calling, people have been calling. And uh, in about half an hour, he's gonna have a press conference and announce that he is charging all of the policemen. Now this is absolutely unbelievable, right? There has never been a single white cop uh, charged with murder of a black man. There's never been, in the history of Minnesota, you know, and now uh, we're having four policemen charged on the same murder. There's certainly never been a cop of any kind charged as an accessory to a murder. Um, And the fact that that is happening is only because uh, of all of the voices, of all of the pressure. Um, And again, you know, when we talk about community, you know, white people tend to be part of powerful institutions, right? Mm -hmm. So white people work at universities, white people work in labor unions, white people uh, work in all of these respectable uh, places. And so that's the other thing is that we begin to have leverage to change our institutions. And, you know, all of these things, you know, this is one of the great tragedies of the way that uh, the church has been formed in America, which is very much Uh, a part of whiteness. The church has very much been co-opted by white supremacy. And so there is this incredible divide between uh, spirituality, religion, and, you know, politics, right? And a lot of white pastors will get in trouble, you know, if they're too political uh, in church. And, uh, and that is, that is uh, an, complete nonsense, right? And I mean, you, you try finding one page of the Bible that doesn't have something about God and something about a king uh, on it. Uh, mm-hmm. You're not going to find that page. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, maybe there's one somewhere, but... Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, and kings are politics, right? I mean, you right. know... Well, in the people old day, are. Well, people are, but it's a lot easier maybe for people to understand, right? That that the king is politics. And and the idea, right, is that what God is interested in is, again, a just society. And so uh, that really ultimately is where the spiritual life leads communities, right, out into society uh, to become... Uh, just. And so all of the ways that we can do that uh, ultimately are part of our spiritual lives. And again, the, the confidence, the, the power, uh, the courage uh, to do all of that flows directly out of our life of practice, right? Because ultimately it is, it is God that is uh, doing that. You know, I, uh, people, (laughs) You know, people love the one-hit wonder Martin Luther King quotes, 
which I know a lot of my black friends find uh, really sort of revolting. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, one of the favorites, right, is that the arc of history bends towards justice. Yeah, that's one of the favorite quotes. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, what, what one of my colleagues said about that when we were talking about it the other day is that it only does that if we get on up on the ark and jump on it. And that's right. Mm-hmm. And weight it down. Yeah. Uh, the arc of history does not necessarily bend towards justice. Uh, and, uh, and we have to get up on that arc and pull and tug and shove and stomp and, and get it mm-hmm. to bend down. Yeah. And God is with us in that work, uh, but, but we have to participate. Right? Yeah. And so, so connecting with that energy, uh, that flow of the spirit, is what our spiritual life is about. But, but that doesn't, you know, keep us in our comfortable little place. It pulls us out into the world. Right. Yeah. So tell us about your work with MICA, the Minnesota Institute for uh, Contemplation and Healing. Right. And talk to us a little bit about uh, how contemplation and healing uh, dance together and, and what that work kind of looks like embodied. Yeah, so Micah, we, a number of us started uh, 18 years ago, and uh, we work in the area of spiritual life and leadership, healing, and the arts. And so that's a pretty broad swath of uh, territory. And uh, I like to joke that that means we can kind of do whatever we want. Um, And uh, so we, uh, we we tend to work in kind of four main arenas, I would say. Uh, one is, let's say we have this retreat center in Northwest Minnesota, which of course has now been closed down by the pandemic. So it's not really clear what's going to be happening mm-hmm. with that. Uh, then there's uh, offsite teaching and retreat work, like my, my going to an academy. Uh, and so that's a big part of what we do. Uh, we then uh, have our website, and as I said, all the online work that I do, and so there are you know, resources there. And, uh, and then we do a lot of work in the area of integrative medicine. And so uh, my wife, who's uh, Deborah Bell, who's an integrative medicine physician, is uh, one of the co-founders of MICA, and uh, so we do a lot of work in health and spirituality, uh, and in fact, the academy uh, in West Virginia, we were going to be co-teaching there. That uh, was going to be specifically on uh, embodied spirituality. Uh, and so we, we really see that, uh, that the spiritual life is, of course, very much a part not only of healing in general, but also a part of who we are and what it is that, that allows us to be uh, healthy uh, and so, yeah, so that's a big, a big part of what we do. And uh, yeah, so teaching, writing, retreat leading, uh, programmatic things, uh, integrative medicine work, uh, and then art weaving through that in a lot of different ways. Uh, that's, that's what we're up to. Yeah. So for those who might not fully understand integrative medicine, give us a quick Right. So integrative medicine integrates uh, multiple different healing modalities. Uh, So uh, our standard going to the doctor is what is called allopathic medicine. Uh, That's that's a particular type of medicine, which is the dominant medical practice in our society. Uh, But then there are many, many other uh, types of uh, modalities, things uh, like, you know, body work, massage, chiropractic, uh, acupuncture, traditional Chinese medicine, uh, homeopathy, herbal medicine, uh, spirituality work and practice. And so what integrative medicine does, uh, you know, nutrition, lifestyle work, uh, all of that. And so what integrative medicine does is it integrates all of those together. Uh, and, and clinics or practitioners who do this kind of work uh, become knowledgeable in many different modalities and begin to understand which of these are uh, helpful in different situations. And, uh, you know, obviously, if you 
break your leg, uh, the, the dominant thing you want to do is, is go to an allopathic doctor and get a cast put on. Uh, but, you know, if you have uh, some kind of chronic digestive problem, uh, allopathic medicine really does not have much to offer you. Right? Yeah. And, and so, uh, but many other modalities have a lot to offer you. And so if you know about that, uh, you can direct uh, people to other kinds of, uh, kinds of practice. Yeah. And I know that this type of medicine is often, um, well, I'm, I might be making an assumption here, but it's, it's not always covered on people's health insurance, right? Uh, well, no, that, that depends. Uh, so, okay. so for example, uh, Deborah, who is a, board-certified family practitioner, MD, uh, all of her visits are covered. Uh, most of the uh, work that is done uh, in, in the clinic where she works, uh, uh, some of that work is covered by insurance, some isn't. Yeah, there's a whole patchwork of things. But certainly if you're going to uh, an MD physician, uh, nurse practitioner, uh, even chiropractors, a lot of chiropractors, uh, many of these will be. Uh, but yes, there then are many practitioners uh, that are not. So it's, uh, and it depends what state you're in. I mean, it's very kind of complicated. <laughs> right. <laughs> Welcome to America. Yeah. Again, yeah. Yeah, many, many issues. But I think where I'm going is I'm curious how, what conversations you're involved in and in making this kind of healing work more accessible mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, to more people. Uh, yeah, so I mean, we've been involved in a lot of conversations about that, and it's actually one of the reasons that uh, that Deborah was so interested in becoming an MD and working in uh, more standard clinical care settings is for that exact purpose to allow access. Right. So one of the biggest projects that Micah has done is that we partnered with our local hospital in Northwest Minnesota to create a primary care integrative medicine clinic. She was the medical director of that. And she, we had a few other practitioners there, you know, and so this is a local community hospital in a rural area. And uh, we had patients coming to us from those 300 mile uh, radius uh, catchment area uh, because this is a standard family practice clinic in a regular old hospital uh, accessible to everybody, you know, people took Medicaid, Medicare, I mean, all of the basic stuff. And so, you know, that's very important to us, actually. And, and it is true that, unfortunately, a lot of integrative health settings uh, are very much just settings for the rich. I mean, they're private practice settings that are incredibly expensive, mostly out of pocket, uh, way beyond uh, the, the the capacity for the average person, certainly totally out of the question for a poor person. So, uh, so one of the things that, that we've been very interested in doing, and uh, both uh, Deborah and I were doing some teaching at the medical school at the University of North Dakota. She's been doing a lot of work and mentoring uh, with folks down here, uh, is the idea of uh, training more and more primary care physicians in integrative uh, health and wellness, uh, so that the average person can uh, access that kind of care. Uh, but it's, you know, it's very slow going, uh, very uh, challenging. And even though, uh, even though many, many people see an integrative practitioner of some kind or an alternative practitioner of some kind, uh, it still largely is off the radar of large uh, mainstream kinds of settings. Yeah. And, uh, and people, you know, there's just, there is not enough access. It's a big yeah. problem. Yeah. One of the uh, prayers and, and mantras that has come to me for a while now, these three months, I guess that we've been in quarantine, but even in this past week is, uh, De Chardin's uh, The Slow Work of God, uh, and just kind of over and over again that it is slow, intentional, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it is the work of God. And I'm hearing that just in all of our, all of the pieces of our conversation today. So, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the earliest uprising uh, that I remember uh, were the Watts riots in Los Angeles in 1965. And, uh, you know, I was five years old. And those were the results of police killing an unarmed black man. And here we are, 55 years later, <laughs> and I'm still talking about this. And uh, that's uh, really depressing. Um, and it's also a really small piece of the 400-year history of us still dealing with uh, the abuse of black people in this country. Uh, so, yeah, the, the work of the spiritual life is very slow. And uh, that is uh, maddening at times and sad and painful at times. And it's just the way things go. Right. So, uh, so we learn to sit with that. Uh, and we also learn to, you know, celebrate the good moments. Uh, and I've been talking about that these last couple of days, uh, because although we have not solved any problems in any final way in the last week, uh, we have had a lot of wins. We've had yeah. a lot of wins. Yeah. And, and that's great. And you've got to get happy about that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because, you know, it's, yeah, things are slow. And so when you have a good day, you gotta, you gotta celebrate. Celebrate that. That's right. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you're on Facebook that folks can follow along with you there. Uh, is there anywhere else that we can follow along with you in your current work? Uh, you know, that's really the best place. Uh, Micah has a website. We're in the process of redoing that. Unfortunately, that process has really been slowed by the pandemic. So, uh, yeah. so that site is, uh, yeah, is not as active right now. Um, so really following me on Facebook. Uh, the other thing that I've been doing is uh, my colleague, uh, Mark Van Steenwick, and I have been doing an almost daily video cast uh, called Transmission, mm -hmm. uh, Radical Spirituality in Uncertain Times, uh, and that's also on Facebook. Uh, it's also on the Micah Facebook page and on his organization's page, uh, the Center for Prophetic Imagination. And so those are really fun conversations. We do them at 10 o'clock in the morning central time, but then the videos are posted and they're there, and we have guests sometimes. Uh, we had a great guest today. Uh, talking about police abolition. Uh, so that's another uh, place to, to check out all kinds of stuff. And yeah, you know, it's funny because a week ago, we were actually talking mostly about the pandemic. Right. <laughs> and th this week, it's, right. it's shifted a lot. But. Yes. Same, same here. We, we started these conversations as holy and healing conversations in the time of COVID. And you know, I sat here and I said, it's not really holy or healing if we're not directly talking about anti-racism and mm -hmm. how, how we land with this mm -hmm. and, um, and how the spiritual life, as you have so beautifully said, uh, encompasses all of it. So yeah. thank you for that. And um, I would love for you to just offer us a, a prayer or a blessing, a quote, something from your wisdom or someone else's wisdom through you as we close today. Okay. Well, I've got something that, um, you know, one of the things that white people have really been struggling with is, uh, you know, I don't like it when somebody breaks a window or steals something uh -huh. and uh, they, they seem to get really far more upset about that, frankly, than they are about, people being killed, um, which is sad. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I just want to end then uh, with this co uh, quote. Um, you know, I think one of the questions you sent out on the advanced question thing was about my teachers relative to race yeah. and racism. And uh, so I've, I'm so lucky I've got some great living teachers, uh, but I actively pursue a lot of dead teachers too. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so one of those is James Baldwin, who was a brilliant writer, speaker, uh, 
there was a great movie recently called I Am Not Your Negro, which is mostly about him. And it's an unbelievable film. I could listen to him you know, yeah. for hours on end. So in 1968, uh, there were similar nationwide uprisings. Uh, and in the midst of that, he did an interview with Esquire magazine. And so I, I want to read uh, this question and, and his answer. Uh, that's a great place to end. Um, so he was asked, how would you define somebody who smashes in the window of a television store and takes what he wants? And so Baldwin says, before I get to that, how would you define somebody who puts a person where they are and takes all the money out of the ghetto where he makes it? Who is looting whom? Grabbing off the TV set? He doesn't really want the TV set. He's saying, screw you. It's just judgment, by the way, on the value of the TV set. He doesn't want it. He wants to let you know he's there. The question I'm trying to raise is a very serious question. The mass media television and all the major news agencies endlessly use that word looter. On television, you always see black hands reaching in, you know. And so the American public concludes that these savages are trying to steal everything from us. And no one has seriously tried to get where the trouble is. After all, you're accusing a captive population who has been robbed of everything of looting. I think it's obscene. Thanks for listening along with us today. For more information on how you can begin and continue the work of anti-racism, visit the Academy Resources page at academy.upperroom.org backslash resources. Feel free to share this podcast with others. May it be a prayer, a guide, an inspiration, a beacon of hope, a means for justice in your lives and in the lives of all. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides in the area of spiritual formation and to learn more about Academy offerings, visit us online at academy.upperroom.org. Thank you.